Okay, so, yes, we're going to begin a study in the book of Esther this morning. How many of you know the story of Esther? Awesome. So you'll all know, well, you'll know, the ones who know the story of Esther will know. It's a very cool story, right? Yeah? Full of drama, some romance of a sort. There's irony. It's actually quite funny story. It's, yeah, it's actually hilarious to read through. It's a great, 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 great story. It's got, it's historically, it's quite interesting. It like gives us a glimpse into the glory of like palace life in the Persian Empire. It's also historically relevant for the Jewish people. There's a feast called Purim that they celebrate each year around about March, which remembers the story of Esther and basically another time in their history when somebody tried to wipe them out and they survived. And so now they have a feast to remember this. this so anyway, it's a cool book. It's also something of a puzzle, and I mentioned this last week. Something that's very strange about the book of Esther is it does not mention God anywhere in the book. Nor does it mention anything religious. There's no prayer, there's no worship, there's no reading of scripture, there's nothing religious about the book of Esther. Which raises the question, what on earth is it doing in the Bible, right? And Paul says that these things happen to them, talking about people in the Old Testament, happen to them as examples and were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And he said in Romans, everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction. So we've learned stuff. And so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. Yeah. So as far as Paul's concerned, everything, particularly in the Old Testament, is there for us to learn, about, learn from and to encourage us. Encourage literally means to put courage into us. Right. It should make us courageous and give us hope. Now, hope in what? We would have encouragement, we would be courageous through the scriptures and that we may have hope. What is our hope as Christians? Who is our hope? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. God is our hope, right? And so the question is, what is this book, a book that has, says nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, there's no prophecy in it, what does it have to teach us that qualifies it to be a part of God's divine word? Well, I think there might be a clue in the name of the book. The book is called Esther. Esther, that's in Hebrew. But this is actually her Persian name. In old Persian, looked like this. Sitare, something like that. That's her name in Persian. 
but then they transliterated it. Do you, does anybody know what transliteration is? Okay, so sitare is a word in Persian. It means star, but it can also be fate or destiny, right? It's written in the stars. Yeah? So that's the word. Now, if you translate that word into from Persian into Hebrew, you try to uh, recreate the meaning of the word in a different language. Yes? So then you would have the Hebrew word for star would be the translation of her name. Yes? Transliteration is you're not trying to recreate the meaning of the word, you're trying to recreate the sound of the word. So with names, we usually transliterate rather than translate. Yeah? And so Esther was the transliteration. It was trying to reproduce the sound of, the, of, the, of her name in Persian. But as we'll look at in a bit, it's quite complicated because language is all different and you can't just always recreate it perfectly. But anyway, the main, and then the other thing to remember is that in Hebrew, there's no vowels in written Hebrew. All these little dots, those are the things that tell you what the vowels are and they were put in later. But the Hebrew is written in consonants. And so what really matters is the consonants in her name in Persian is S-T-R. And that's what's recreated here, S-T-R. And it's those three. But anyway, so, long story, but transliteration of her Persian name, Esther. But there's kind of a pun in the Hebrew because those three letters, S-T-R, that's actually a word in Hebrew. It's satar, and it means to hide or conceal. And so hidden in the name of the book is the word hidden or concealed. Yeah? Yeah. I think, I think this is a clue to what's going on in this story. God is absolutely present in the book of Esther, and you can see him all the way through, and we'll... You'll, you'll see that as we get through it. But he's not out there as like a pillar of cloud or fire from heaven or even in the voice of a prophet. He's there, but he's hidden. Yeah? And I think that's on purpose. I don't think that's an accident. I think that's part of what makes this such a wonderful book and so relevant to our own experience, because I don't know about you, but like, I've never heard a thunderous voice from heaven speaking to me. I've never woken up in the morning, gone outside and found like food on the grass for me, right? Or water coming out of some random rock in my garden. Nor has the sun stood still when I've had more work to get done in the day than there's been time, right? That's not my experience of God. God's work in my life isn't really visible in that way. Uh, when I look back at my life and, I, and see the path that brought me to be standing here, there's no question in my mind that God has been working in my life to bring me here, yeah? But...
Yeah, but not seen. In the background, unseen. And I think that that really is what the story of Esther is supposed to show us. These are relatively ordinary people. They're not prophets. They're not kings. They're not even living in the land where God had told them to live. But God is working in their lives and He's using them, right? Not, again, not obviously like we see in the book of Exodus or Judges or most of the rest of the Old Testament, but in the background, unseen, hidden. He's working in the way that most of us experience Him working in our own lives most of the time. And so I think the fact that God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther Again, it's not an accident. It's on purpose. It's part of God's brilliant design and the example and encouragement that He wants us to learn from this story. That even when you can't see Him, even in the darkest moments of history, even in the darkest moments of your own lives, God is at work. And one day, when we can look back on our lives and we can look back on history, we're going to see that we're going to see God weaving all these things together into this beautiful picture, right? Um, and we're going to find that God was working even when there was no obvious sign of Him. And I think that's the encouragement, something that should make us courageous even when times are dark and all hope is lost because we have a hope. Our hope is Jesus, God, and He, as He said to Joshua, will never leave us or abandon us. Now, when we get to the end of the book of Esther, we're also going to look at some other ways that God is hidden within the, the design of the book, the design of the story and the structure of the text. But for now, we'll start the story. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. The following events happened... In the days of Ahasuerus, I'm referring to that Ahasuerus who used to rule over 127 provinces, extending all the way from India to Ethiopia. So that seems like a pretty good place to stop and ask some questions. The story takes place in the days of Ahasuerus. Who was Ahasuerus? So again, this is a Hebrew transliteration. Well, actually, this is an English transliteration of a Hebrew transliteration of a Persian name. <laughs> and again, transliteration can be complicated because languages are complicated. They're not all the same. They don't even have... Well, I can give you an example. So our Savior's name is Jesus. Okay, that's in English. The spelling of the name Jesus is borrowed from German, Jesus. But in German, a J is pronounced as a, a Y. It's Jesus. We just use the same spelling, but then pronounce it like it was English, Jesus. It's more complicated than that. It took a long time, but anyway. So we have an English transliteration or English version of the German name, Jesus. 
The German is a transliteration of Latin, Jesus, which is a transliteration of Greek, Jesus, which is a transliteration of his Hebrew name, which was Yeshua. Yeshua is quite different to Jesus, right? That's because, firstly, there's no Y in Greek. So that's approximated with an I, and then that kind of follows, follows through. But also, there's no sh sound in Greek. So that became an S. And then, in Greek, masculine names need an S at the end. Otherwise, it just doesn't work with the way that they structure their sentences. And so they added an S to the end of his name to make it masculine, so that it worked in Greek. And so that's how you get from Yeshua, which is his Hebrew name, into Jesus in Greek, and then that follows all the way down to Jesus. Yeah? So anyway, all that to say that transliteration is complicated, and there's a good reason why sometimes names in one place of the Bible don't look exactly the same as names in another part of the Bible, or names in the Bible don't always look the same as names in history books. It's because of this kind of stuff. It's complicated. So, okay, we have this guy... The Persian king, his actual name was this. <laughs> this is like a Shayasha. There's two different ways of trying to represent those sounds with an English alphabet. The one is using a KH for that sound, and then the other is a, an X, and then the like sh sound. It's a form of an S. Um, apparently it was sh, but it's represented also as an S with a particular mark on it. Anyway, so the point is that's his name. It was made up of two Persian names, uh, two Persian words. Kashaya, which meant like... Kashaya. It's a ch, ch. Yeah, as far as I know, I'm not uh, fluent in Persian, <laughs> particularly not like wow. ancient Persian. But my understanding is that this is a Khashaya word, and it means like ruler or king, and Arsa, which means man or hero, manly, like, you know, masculine. So his name probably meant something like manly king, or ruler of man, or ruler of heroes like he is the you know the he's greater out of all yeah anyway something like that in hebrew that was transliterated to this ach verosh which again if you look at the consonants is quite similar to the the persian and then that's we don't have a sound in english so that just became an h and again the s the the sh became an s when it was translated into English. And so that's the name that we have in our English Bible, Ahasuerus, but it comes from this Kashayarashura. We do. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what happened to that, um, but the SH in Hebrew, that word sheen, or that letter sheen, can be an S or a sh, depending on whether the dot is on that side or that side. And in the original, there was no dot. So it's a, it's a letter that can go 
be either yeah and so it's gone to s anyway so the point is this is how we get our let our, our word that shows up in our english bible it also his name got translated into greek and getting trans or transliterated into greek it got translated into xerxes or at least that's the way that we pronounce it yeah and so this is the king if you read history books this is the word that's used it's the greek version of his persian name whereas in our bibles it's the hebrew version of his, the persian name yeah but okay so this ahasuerus is xerxes it might be yeah some of them will do that uh just to make it easier for people to follow okay so it's this Ahasuerus is the Xerxes who became king of an empire called Persia, Persian Empire in 486 BC, almost 500 BC. And at that time, the Persian Empire extended all the way from India in the east to Ethiopia in the west slash south. Um, and it's actually really interesting. This is a recreation of one of Xerxes' palaces in a place called Persepolis in, um, in Persia. As you'll see, like, it was an incredibly wealthy empire and quite spectacular. And there's this, these stairs at the front still exist and some of the pillars. Um, I'll show you pictures probably next week. But in the, underneath the foundations of this palace, they found this box with gold and silver tablets in it and in those tablets uh, there's a record of the lands that Xerxes and his father Darius ruled and it says this is the kingdom which I hold from Sakai or the Scythians who are like in the north on the way up to uh, Russia who are, born, who are beyond Sogdia to Kush which is the old name for Ethiopia so that's north to south, basically. How do they get Kush from Ethiopia? That's, that's a different thing. Things are also named differently at different times. We change the names of cities and things. Um, so, yeah, anyway. Uh, and from India in the east to Lydia, which is Turkey in the west. And so it gives the dimensions, you know, the extent of his kingdom. And it's interesting. It's kind of cool that it's the same, like, extent that's used in the bible that says from india to ethiopia but i think to really appreciate who the xerxes was and how he relates to israel we need to do a little bit of a history lesson which is mostly what we're doing today but hopefully it'll be interesting okay so here we are 1900s we had a couple of world wars we had the rebirth of the nation of israel it's just the important things that happened in the last hundred but years then of course like i was born <laughs> it is calvary chapel was started in auckland around 1998 i think 1999 and then we have fusion starting a few years ago and that's us here 2023 But now we're going to go back in time, 4,000 years-ish, to about 2000 BC. And there's a man living 
In a city, er, yes? Years. Yeah? This is 2,000 years before Jesus, which is, and we're now 2,000 years after, so this is like 4,000 years ago. Yeah? Ish. And we have a man called Abraham living in a, in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. And that was basically the old name for the area that later became Babylon and now is Iraq. So he's living in southern Iraq, basically, in a place called Ur. And God speaks to him and tells him, leave your family, leave your home, follow me to a land far, far away, where I will bless you. And so he and his wife, Sarah, do. They follow God. They got, get stuck up in Haran for a while. But after his dad dies, he eventually does what God tells him and he follows him to Canaan. In the land of Canaan, he has a son, eventually, Isaac, when he's like 100 years old. And then Isaac has a son called Jacob that God renames Israel. Yeah? Now, God told Abraham that they were going to inherit this land, the land of Canaan. But he told them that before that happened, his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Yeah? And so that happens through Jacob's son, Joseph. You guys know the story? It's one of my favorite stories probably in the Bible. He gets sold out by his brothers and sent to Egypt. But while he's there, he becomes... Second to Pharaoh. And then there's a famine, at least in the Middle East. It affects Egypt and it also affects Canaan. And his whole family, Jacob and his sons, would have died from starvation in Canaan, except that they go to Egypt to get grain and there they meet Joseph. And, and so they get brought to Egypt. Jacob and all of his family get brought to Egypt, initially as VIPs. They're like the family of the vice pharaoh. But eventually, the pharaoh dies, Joseph dies, and they get made slaves in Egypt. And so they then spend the next 400 years as slaves in Egypt. Which brings us to the book of Exodus. And somebody called? Moses. Brings us to the story of Moses, who God uses to lead his people, the people of Israel, to freedom. Kind of. Because after destroying Egypt with plagues, and then bringing his people through the Red Sea, on dry ground, then drowning the Egyptians behind them in that same sea, and then leading them with a pillar of cloud and fire, feeding them with manna and quail and giving them water from rocks. When they finally arrive on the border of the land of Canaan, they don't have enough faith that God will give them victory, can give them victory over the people living there, which I think it's a lesson in and of itself. There's lots of lessons for us through 
the story through basically the nation of Israel. But we often say, like, you know, if God would just show himself to me, then I would trust him and believe him. But Israel proved many times that that's not really true. Um, it doesn't tend to be how it works. Anyway, so instead of entering the promised land, they spent 40 years wandering around the desert. <laughs> it's approximate. Did they, walk, yeah. did they, actually, did they walk backwards? Um, yeah. They would definitely have walked around in circles at least. I swear I've that truth. So, yeah. so they spent 40 years following the pillar around the desert until all the adults who had failed to trust God when they were at the border of Canaan had died. God basically said, fine, you don't trust me, then you can't go into the land of Canaan. I will bring your children in. And so all the adults died, including Moses, and eventually they ended up back where they started, except 40 years later. Uh, and this time... Yep. Honestly, this is kind of life as well. God it can bring us to places in our lives where we can choose to trust Him or not, and if we choose not to, often we just end up going around in a big circle until we get to a point where we trust Him. And that was, that was Israel. So anyway, so Moses has now died, and Joshua, his young disciple, leads, Israel, uh, leads the people of Israel into the land of Canaan, and God gives them victory over everybody that they face. And now we have a nation of Israel in the land of Israel. The next 400 years, we had the time of the judges, which is recorded in the book of Judges. And Judges, basically, it's just a leader, right? There was somebody leading the people, and they're called judges. In some cases, they would have had the responsibility of if there were disputes between people judging but mostly they were just leaders. They weren't leaders of the whole nation of Israel for the most part. They might have just been leaders of particular tribes who were dealing with particular things. But anyway, we have 400 years of these judges. And the catchphrase for that period, which is repeated in the book of Judges, is in those days, Israel had no king. Each man did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. Good or bad? Yeah, it wasn't a good time. Israel had no king. God was their king, but they didn't obey God like he was their king. And so things didn't go well for them. It was basically this repeated cycle of like God would bless his people. So then his people would kind of get complacent, get lazy, stop worshiping him, start worshiping other gods. God would allow some other nation to oppress them. They would then cry out to God, please save us. God would raise up a leader for them, a judge, who would deliver them from whoever it was who was oppressing them. So then they'd all be really grateful and they'd pray and thank God, worship Him, and then He would bless them. And then the cycle would start again, which again, it's, that's life a little bit as well for us. Um, anyway, it's in amongst all of this mess of the time of the judges that the story of Ruth is set, which is where we started a couple of years back. Okay. 
So eventually, the people of Israel uh, grow tired of having this unseen God as their king. And so they asked their leader at that time, Samuel, to give them a real king, a human king. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Nate taught on it on Friday night in the story of Samuel. They said to Samuel, look, you're old. Your sons don't follow your ways. So now appoint over us a king to lead us just like all the other nations have. We want a king. Samuel's not happy about this. So he's wise. He takes it to God. And God says to him, do everything the people request of you, for it is not you that they have rejected, but it is me that they have rejected as their king. Just as they have done from the day that I brought them up from Egypt until this very day, they have rejected me and have served other gods. This is what they are doing to you. So now do as they say, but you must warn them and make them aware of the policies of the king who will rule over them. And so Samuel told the people what God had said. He warned them, a king is going to take your sons and make him fight his battles. He's going to take your daughters and make them work in his, in his palace. He's going to take your best land, your best crops, your best animals, and he's going to give them to his friends. You're basically going to become his slave. And when you cry out to God to save you from your king, he's not going to listen to you because you've rejected him. The people refused to heed Samuel's warning. Instead, they said, no, there will be a king over us. We will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. And so Samuel listened to everything the people said and then reported it to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, do as they say, install a king over them. And so Samuel appoints this man called Saul, a Benjamite, from the tribe of Benjamin to be king over Israel. And this is around about 1000 BC. So we've gone about 1000 years so far. Now, Saul was an impressive guy. He was tall, he was handsome, he came from a wealthy family, but his character was weak. Wait, Christian. Saul was arrogant, he was disobedient, and he was unwilling to admit when he was wrong. And so eventually God takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to a young boy called David. David becomes king, a man after God's own heart, apparently. If you know the story of David, he messed up terribly in his life, but he was humble. And whenever he was confronted with his sin, he immediately repented. And so, unlike Saul. And so God blesses him and he blesses Israel through him in a really big way. David is succeeded by his son Solomon, who builds God's temple in Jerusalem and is the wisest and wealthiest king in the history of Israel. Um, but Solomon had his own problems. 700 wives and 300 mistresses. But he dies in peace. He dies in peace with Israel at essentially its most powerful point, And he's replaced by his son, Rehoboam. Now, part of the reason why Solomon was so wealthy 
was that he taxed the people a lot, which is exactly what God told, like warned them their king would do. Rehoboam, his son, rather than like lighten the burden of taxes, he decided he was going to increase the taxes even more. And so the people from the tribes in the north of Israel basically said, yeah, nah, see you later. And they appointed one of Solomon's generals, Jeroboam, to be their king. And so at this point, things get quite messy. The kingdom of Israel splits into two. In the south, you have the kingdom of Judah with Rehoboam and all of David's descendants as king. And in the north, you have, at this point, the king, well, what they call the kingdom of Israel. So kingdom of Judah had the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin in it which were the southern tribes, and then all the northern tribes split off and did their own thing. And they appointed this guy called Jeroboam as their king. Now, the tribes in the north had a problem because God had told his people that the way that they were to worship him was in the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah? Jeroboam was understandably concerned about this because... Having his people travel into the kingdom of Judah to worship their God could cause problems, right? What if the king in Judah said, no, you can't come here unless you support me. And so he believes for the sake of his own kingdom, he needs to find some other way for his people in his kingdom to worship their God that is not in Jerusalem and not in the temple. And so his solution is he sets up two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan, and tells the people, and a whole bunch of like temples up in the hills, and says you can worship God here. And so pretty much from the start, things were not great in the kingdom of Israel. They were worshiping idols most of the time. And every single one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were bad. They all encouraged the people to sin and to worship other gods. God gave them about 200 years to like, figure stuff out, get things right, get serious with the relationship. 200 years. So about 730 BC. Uh, and, but they didn't. They kept worshiping idols, kept rejecting God. And so eventually God sent the Assyrian Empire to take out Israel. And the Assyrians had a policy when they conquered a nation, they basically took all the people from there and put them somewhere else in their kingdom and then took people from somewhere else in their kingdom and put them there. And so that's exactly what he did with Israel. He took the Israelites out of Israel, put them somewhere else in his kingdom, and he brought others and put them into Israel. And things didn't go very well for those people. They were all getting eaten by lions. And so the king of Assyria decided it must be that they don't know how to worship the God of that land. And so he sent a priest, one of the Israelites' priests, back to Israel to teach these foreigners how to worship God. They didn't stop worshiping their other gods, but now they were worshiping God as well. And those people then become the Samaritans that we read about later. Yeah, these are foreigners. They're not Jewish, but they're living in Samaria, which is the northern part of Israel and they kind of worship God. Okay. So that's what's happening up in the north. Down in the south, uh, things are a little bit better. There's still a lot of bad kings, a lot of kings who encourage the people of Judah, the Jews, 
to worship idols and that kind of stuff. But at least in the South, there are also some good kings who destroy all the idols and encourage the people to worship God again. And so God gives them more time. Plus, they also now have Israel as an example, right, of what happens if you keep rejecting God. Um, but anyway, so he gave them another 130 years, but still didn't work out so well. They still kept going against him, kept rejecting him. And at that point now, there's a, a new empire, the Babylonian Empire. And just before 600 BC, about 605 BC, or a young man called Nebuchadnezzar takes over from his father as king of Babylon. And uh, yeah, a little bit after that, Babylon conquers the kingdom of Judah. And again, most of the people in Judah get deported out to Babylon. Now, it's at that point that we have the story of Daniel. Daniel's a young prince, Jewish prince from Jerusalem, and he gets deported to Babylon and gets trained to be a royal official in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And you guys know that story, all the stories around Daniel, Daniel and his friends. Um, yeah, interesting story. Won't go into it too much now. But something very significant happens in Nebuchadnezzar's second year of his, king, of his reign. He has a dream. Does anybody remember what the dream is? Statue. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and in his dream, he sees this huge statue. The head of the statue is made of gold, the chest is silver, the waist is bronze, the legs are iron. And then he sees this rock come and smash into the base of the statue, and the entire thing crumbles into dust and is blown away. And then that rock grows into a huge mountain that covers the whole earth. Okay, that's his dream. He's very confused by this dream and quite stressed out. And he wants to know what it means. But he's just become king, right? He's just taken over from his father and he's inherited all of these advisors and he doesn't really know if they're even trustworthy. And so he sets this challenge for them. He says, you need to tell me what my dream meant, but you also need to tell me what, I, what my dream was. And they're all like, that's crazy. Nobody can do that. You tell me what you dreamt, and then I'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, like, tell me what it, me what it was, and then I'll know that you can, that you, you know, have these, this communication with the gods that allows you to tell me what it meant. And anyway, so they're all like, we can't do that. And so then he orders all the wise men in the Babylonian kingdom to be executed. When the people arrive at Daniel. Now, Daniel's just a young guy. He's only been here a little while, a couple years, being trained up. The guys come to execute him. And he's like, what's going on? Anyway, so he finds out what's going on. He says, hold up, hold up. Let me pray about it. And him and his friends spend the night praying. And God shows him what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt and what it meant. And so he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar the next day. And he says, like, I can't tell you what your dreamt mean." 
what your dream meant, but there's a God in heaven who can, and he's revealed it to me. And this is what he said. You, O king, are that head of gold. But you're going to be replaced. Your kingdom is going to be replaced by another kingdom, an inferior kingdom, silver. It's just like playing a little bit to Nebuchadnezzar's pride. That's going to be replaced by a kingdom, another one, represented by the bronze, and then by another kingdom represented by the iron. But none of those kingdoms are going to last forever. Ultimately, God is going to come and establish, he's going to destroy all the, all the kingdoms that came before, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And that kingdom will last forever. And that's the mountain. Yeah? Okay. So anyway, Nebuchadnezzar is super impressed. And so he puts Daniel in charge of the province of Babylon, the area around the city. He, puts him, he makes him head of all the other advisors, all the other wise men in Babylon, which you can imagine this like young guy getting put in charge of all these old people who've been there for ages, not popular. And so that leads to some of the other stuff that goes on in the story of Daniel. Um, and over time, he becomes one of Nebuchadnezzar's closest advisors. Okay. About 40 years later, Nebuchadnezzar dies and is replaced by uh, his son, Evil Merodach, or Amel Marduk. And around the same time that he becomes king, well, similar, it's quite close, there's a guy called Cyrus II who becomes king in an area called, ooh, called Persia. At that time, Persia was, uh, it was subject to the Median Empire. So it was its own like kingdom that had some autonomy, but ultimately it had to pay taxes and be ruled by this larger Median Empire. So anyway, this will become relevant shortly. Evil Merodach doesn't last very long, and then he's usurped by his brother-in-law, a guy called Neriglasa, and he lasted about four years before he was replaced by a man called Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus was a very distracted king, wasn't that much interested in ruling an empire. And so after seven years, he took off to a place called Tima, Tima in Arabia, and he appoints his son, Belshazzar, to rule Babylon in his place. And it's in the first year of Belshazzar's rule that Daniel, who's now about 67, has his own dream, and it's quite intense. Daniel says, In this vision I saw myself in Susa the citadel, which is located in the province of Elam. In the vision I saw myself at the Ulai Canal. That's in Persia. Susa is the city in Persia. He sees himself in Persia. I looked up and I saw a ram with two horns standing at the canal. Its two horns were both long, but one was longer than the other. He's in Persia, right? There's a ram, it's at this canal, and it's got two horns, and one's bigger than the other. Horns represent strength and authority. And so you have the Persian Empire, well, the Persians and the Medes, and one's bigger than the other, you've got the two horns, okay. 
The longer one was coming up after the shorter one. I saw that the ram was butting head westward, northward, and southward. No animal was able to stand before it, and there was none who could deliver from its power. It did as it pleased and acted arrogantly. While I was contemplating all this, a male goat was coming from the west. Where's the west? That side, Europe, right? Western Europe, okay. So then he sees this goat out in the west, coming from the west, over the surface of the land without touching the ground. So what's happening? Something that's moving so that it's not touching the ground. What's that a picture of? What? It's you're moving so quickly that it's like you're not touching the ground, right? Now how you like in cartoons and stuff when things go really fast, they feature and they're just flying over the ground. Anyway, so there's this male goat that's coming from the west over the over the surface of the land without touching the ground. This goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes, so like very obvious horn in the middle of its head. It came to the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed against it with raging strength. I saw it approaching the ram. It went into a fit of rage against the ram and struck it and broke off its two horns. The ram had no ability to resist it. The goat hurled the ram to the ground and trampled it. No one could deliver the ram from its power. The male goat acted even more arrogantly, but no sooner had the large horn become strong than it was broken. And there arose four conspicuous horns in its place, extending towards the four winds of the sky. Pretty intense dream. Anyway, Daniel's... Uh, Uh-oh. This is actually the second dream. Do I have the first one? Oh, no. I don't have his first dream. Okay. The first dream... Says, he says, I was watching in my vision during the night as the four winds of the sky were stirring up the great sea. Then four large beasts came up from the sea. They were different from one another. The first one was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was lifted up from the ground. It was made to stand on two feet like a human being and a human mind was given to it. Then a second beast appeared like a bear. It was raised up on one side and there were three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and devour much flesh. So we've got a lion with wings, we've got a bear. After these things I was watching, another beast like a leopard appeared with four bird-like wings on its back. This beast had four heads and ruling authority was given to it. So we have a leopard, lion, bear, leopard, And then after these things, I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, one dreadful, terrible, and very strong. It had two large rows of iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and anything that was left, it trampled with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that came before it and had ten horns. So he sees these four beasts. The first three, we have a lion, we have a bear, we have a leopard, and then the fourth one is too ter- it doesn't look like anything he's ever seen before, and he doesn't know how to describe it. Just, it's terrible, okay? And God explains to him that this vision that he has of these four beasts is basically a parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue with the four different metals. That the four different beasts represent four different kingdoms. And you kind of get it like, 
Nebuchadnezzar saw those kingdoms from man's perspective, which is like this big, mighty statue with these like precious metals. What Daniel sees is these kingdoms from God's perspective, which is violent, destructive animals. But anyway, so that's his first dream. Uh, And then about two years later, Daniel has this other dream about the goat, the ram and the goat. And so again, Daniel asks God what these dreams mean. And this is what he's told. He's told the ram that you saw with the two horns stands for the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The horn that was broken and in whose place there arose four others stands for four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, though they will not have his strength. So now we have a little bit more information. Apparently the Babylonian Empire, which is the head of gold, the lion, and what? That's all is going to be replaced by the Medes and the Persians. That's the chest of silver, the bear, right? And the ram. And the Medes and the Persians are going to be replaced by who? Hmm? What does he say? Who's the goat that tramples all over the ram? What does he say? Greece, right? It's the male goat is the king of Greece. And so Daniel is told, you are now sitting in the Babylonian empire ruled by the Babylonians, but that's the head of gold. That's going to be replaced by the Medes and the Persians. That's the chest of silver. But they're then going to be replaced by the Greeks. We're talking hundreds of years future at this point, right? Daniel's still sitting 600 BC-ish. Going to be replaced by the Greeks, uh, which, and that, um, just as the Greek empire becomes powerful, its horn, which represents its strength, its king, is going to be broken off, and it's going to be replaced by four weaker kings. And spoiler, that's exactly what happens, but that's getting ahead a little bit. So anyway, so at about that time, Belshazzar is placed in charge of what? At about, so Belshazzar is in charge, uh, has just, just taken over, well, just before Belshazzar takes over from Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus II leads a revolution in Persia and he overthrows the Medes and establishes one giant kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, which he is now Cyrus the Great, king of the Medes and the Persians, right? And just after that happens, Belshazzar becomes takes over as king in Babylon. Uh, The Medo-Persian empire grows in power and starts to challenge the Babylonians. And then eventually, 11 years later, Cyrus decides to take on the Babylonians proper and take on the city of Babylon. Now, the city of Babylon was absolutely huge. It had walls that everybody believed were like impenetrable. Apparently they were so large that they could have chariot races on top of the walls. They had, it was a huge, huge city completely surrounded by this massive wall. It had the Euphrates River flowing through the city. 
So that, and the Euphrates River apparently was 400 meters wide, four meters deep. So they had an endless water supply and they'd apparently stored up enough food in the city of Babylon to survive a 20 year siege. So Belshazzar is sitting in the city of Babylon, surrounded by the Persian army, and they basically just start mocking the Persians. Like, there's no, you can't get in here. We're fine for the next 20 years, thank you. And so they have a party. And we read about this in Daniel chapter 5. King, King Belshazzar prepared a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in front of them all. It's during this feast, while the Persian army is surrounding the city of Babylon, that Belshazzar makes the foolish decision to call for the bowls and cups from, that had been taken out of God's temple in Jerusalem to be brought to their party so that they could drink out of them. And that's when there's the writing on the wall, right? This big hand appears and starts writing stuff on the wall. Belshazzar is apparently terrified. He probably soils himself from something, that, something else that we see. It, it's relevant soon. Uh, but nobody knows what this writing means. And so somebody suggests that they go call this guy Daniel. He's an old man now. Call him. He knows how to interpret stuff. He used to interpret stuff for our great father, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, so, they, so Belshazzar calls Daniel and he promises him all sorts of things, great treasure, you'll be third in the kingdom after him and his father Nabonidus. If you can tell me what this writing means. And Daniel says, basically, you can keep your treasure. I'll tell you what it means. You're not going to survive tonight. <laughs> your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, meanwhile, we don't, this isn't from the Bible. We know this from secular history. While this is all going on, Cyrus had sent his soldiers upriver, up the Euphrates, to higher up the Euphrates River. And they had dug these huge trenches next to the river. And then in the middle of the night, while the Babylonians are all drunk having their party, Cyrus orders the soldiers to break the banks of those trenches. So the Euphrates River water flows out of the river and into these trenches and fills this massive basin area, which means the water level of the Euphrates drops from four meters deep to apparently about mid-thigh. Now, which allowed Cyrus his army then to march into Babylon through the river, through thigh deep water. Now there were big gates where the river entered Babylon over that entrance that should have kept the Persians out or at least allowed the Babylonians to defend their city for a while. But apparently somebody forgot to lock the gates. They were open. And so the Persian army literally walked into Babylon, <laughs> took it over without a battle, Apparently, like, people who shouted, sounded the alarm, like, yelled something, the Persians would, like, yell louder and pretend to be drunk. And so nobody knew what was even going on. And apparently there were people in the center of the city who didn't know Babylon had fallen for, like, until days later, when they finally finished their party and sobered up and realized what had happened. But meanwhile, 
So Babylon has fallen. Babylon is now a part of what becomes the Medo-Persian Empire, which is absolutely huge. It's part of Egypt, yeah. Now, Jewish tradition tell, holds that when Cyrus entered the city of Babylon, having conquered it in the way that he did, he was met by Daniel. This is, again, this is not in the Bible, this is from Jewish traditional history. Uh, and they say that Daniel was holding a scroll, which he presented to Cyrus. And this was a scroll of Isaiah, which at that point was about 200 years old. Isaiah had lived about 200 years before, um, before all of this is happening. And so Daniel presents the scroll to Cyrus and shows him this passage in it. Isaiah 44, This is what the Lord your Redeemer says, the one who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made everything, who alone stretched out the sky, who fashioned the earth all by myself, who frustrates the omens of the empty talkers and humiliates the fortune tellers, who says about Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem is lying in ruins since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it 100, well, 70 years earlier. She will be inhabited and about the towns of Judah, they will be rebuilt. Her ruins I will raise up. Who says to the deep sea, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who commissions Cyrus, the one I appointed as shepherd to carry out all my wishes and to decree concerning Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And concerning the temple, it will be reconstructed. That would have been a surprise to see, right? He's literally by name in the book of Isaiah. And God says, I'll dry up your rivers to him. You are the one I appointed as shepherd to carry out my wishes and my decree concerning Jerusalem, to say about Jerusalem, rebuild it. Yeah? Okay. Continues. This is what the Lord says to his chosen one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I hold in order to subdue nations before him. He's just conquered the Babylonian empire, right? And loosen the loins of kings. There's some debate as to what this means. The Hebrew is to make the waist loose. So some Bibles translate that as like loosen the belt, like your armor, you lose your armor. But the more traditional understanding of what that means is like he soiled himself. To open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Which again, is exactly what happened, right? The gates of the river were left open. And so God says to Cyrus, I will go before you and level mountains. I will shatter bronze doors and cut through iron bars. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stashed away in secret places. So you may recognize that I am the Lord, the one who calls you by name, the God of Israel. For the sake of my servant Jacob, Israel, my chosen one, I call you by name. And give you a title of respect, even though you do not submit to me. I am the Lord. I have no peer. There is no God but me. I arm you for battle, even though you do not recognize me. I do this so that people will recognize from east to west that there is no God but me. I am the Lord. I have no peer. It's pretty cool, right? So, Cyrus is obviously impressed. With this, and so he issues this decree 
in his first year, immediately after he takes over Babylon, he says, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the nations of the earth. He has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, may go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and may, in Judah, and may build the temple of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Anyone who survives in any of those places where he is a resident foreigner must be helped by his neighbors with silver, gold, equipment, and animals, along with voluntary offerings to the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem. Yes. So in the Hebrew and in the Greek, there was no capitals. Everything was capital. There were no capitals in small letters. Basically, the capitals have been put in later when they're doing translations into English. Some, of, some translations make references, references to God capitals. Some translations choose not to because that essentially requires you to interpret what the verse means in order to know who the his is and it's not always perfectly obvious who's being referred to and so just to leave the text neutral to the person who's reading it and studying it they just make everything small does that make sense yeah okay so anyway so cyrus then issues this decree says any jews living in my empire the persian empire can go back to israel and rebuild God's temple there, and everybody else needs to help fund them, and that he, his kingdom, the Persian kingdom, will pay for the temple to be rebuilt. So that's cool. So around 50,000 Jews go back to Jerusalem, and they start building the temple, but they only got as far as the, the foundation. Then the Samaritans, who were living in the north, started to cause trouble. They weren't so happy to have the Jews back and to see them building their temple. And so they started to make trouble. And then the people also just got distracted with building their own homes and reestablishing their farms and stuff like that. And so the temple sits as foundations for a while, um, about 20 years. Uh, yeah, about, no, probably about 10, 10, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so we get back to the timeline. We're now in the Persian Empire during the, um, which is the chest of silver and the bear from the visions um, and the ram with the two horns and one horn's bigger than the other. Uh, yeah, okay. So Cyrus, he dies in about 530 BC and is replaced by his son, Cambyses uh, the second. He reigns for eight years and then he dies and is replaced by Darius the Great, Darius the First. And it's during Darius's reign that we have the story of, es uh, well, we have the book of Ezra and they finally like finish building the temple, 520 BC. Now, Darius has a, um, a very impressive empire. This is the one that goes from India all the way through to Ethiopia. And in 490 BC, he decides he wants to expand into Greece. 
So he sends a massive army over here and they go by boat to a place just about 42 kilometers away from Athens, a place called Marathon. And they land there to invade Greece, take over Greece. Now, and then when they get there, they're confronted by the Athenian army, the army of the city of Athens. And there are about 10,000 soldiers in the Athenian army. Uh, we're not really sure how many Persians there were, but there are estimates of anywhere between 25,000 and 100,000. So regardless, it should have been an easy win. It wasn't. The Athenians defeated the Persians and sent them humiliated back across the sea to the Persian Empire. Tradition, again, we're not probably more legend than history, but it's here that the um, Persian, the like most elite runner in Greece, get sent from Marathon, where they've just had this battle and beaten the Persians. He sprints 42 kilometers to Athens to tell them, we've beaten the Persians, and then he falls down dead. And that's where the term marathon and why it's 42 kilometers. It's from this battle of Darius taking on the, the Greeks. Anyway, four years later, Darius is replaced by his son Xerxes. And this is the Xerxes, or Hazurus, who marries Esther. Now, before we get back to the story of Esther, uh, there's a little more history that I think is useful to know, and it's kind of interesting. Two years after Xerxes takes over from his father, he starts preparing for his own invasion of Greece, basically to avenge his dad and restore the pride of the Persian Empire. So, in 484... He starts preparing for that battle, starts uh, recruiting the army and gathering support around him within the empire, which we'll see next week is relevant to the story of Esther. Um, because that's 484 BC. Esther, the book of Esther starts in 483 BC, just after he starts to prepare for his invasion of Greece. And he spent four years recruiting soldiers, gathering his support before launching his invasion in 480 BC. Now, Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, he says that Xerxes had two million soldiers. That they flattened everything before them, and that when they stopped so that their horses could drink, they like literally dried up rivers. Now, most people think that Herodotus was probably exaggerating to make the Greeks look better, but um, there's no doubt that Xerxes' army was absolutely huge, probably around 200,000 soldiers. And Xerxes planned his route out meticulously. He decided to cross at a place called Hellespont in between Turkey and Greece. And he had his engineers design these two bridges that they could build across this stretch of water. Herodotus records that meanwhile, his men were bridging the Hellespont from Asia to Europe. But no sooner had the strait been bridged than a great storm swept down, breaking and scattering everything. When Xerxes heard of this, he was very angry, and he commanded that the Hellespont be whipped with 300 lashes and a pair of fetters be thrown into the sea. So he's so angry that the sea has destroyed his bridges that he orders his soldiers to go out and whip the sea <laughs> 300 times and to throw these, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like handcuffs, kind of, into the chains, into the water to say, and then like, he commanded them while they were whipping to utter words outlandish and presumptuous. Bitter water, our master thus punishes you. 
because you did him wrong, though he had done you none. Xerxes the king will pass over you whether you want it or not. Basically, yeah, anyway. So, gives you some sense of, like, who this guy Xerxes was, who marries Esther. He also had all the engineers who designed the bridges to be executed, and he hired new engineers to make better bridges. He needn't have bothered, because like his father before him, Xerxes was defeated by the Greek army. This time it was led by the Spartans, and they also had an army of about 10,000, and they beat, they held out against Xerxes' army of probably 200,000. Yeah. And so, again, the Persians were forced back across the water, back to the Middle East, and, but not before Xerxes could set Athens alight and basically burn Athens to the ground, which, again, becomes relevant soon. So, okay, so that's the Persian Empire, uh, the chest of silver. Uh, Artaxerxes takes over from Xerxes, and it's during his rule that Nehemiah happens, and you have, like, the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. And then you have a whole series of sons after that who rule. They, it's a, it lasts a long time, the Persian Empire, um, until eventually in 336 BC. So remember, this is we're looking back in uh, the like 480 BC. This is like 150 years later. You have a young guy called Alexander the Great who becomes king of. Macedonia, which is in the north of Greece. And he's, a, again, a very impressive guy. He's 20 years old at the time. He was tutored by Aristotle. That was, can you imagine? That's your tutor at school, yeah? From the age of 13 to 16. And he decides, having become king of Macedonia, that he wants to invade Persia. But at that time, Greece is not a united kingdom. It's a whole bunch of different cities that all have their own little kings and their little armies. And if he was going to take on Persia, he needed the whole of Greece to come behind him. And so he basically told all these cities in Greece that what he was going to do to Persia was revenge for what Xerxes did to Athens by burning it to the ground. And so by using Xerxes' attempted invasion into Greece he is able to consolidate support from all the different little Greek states behind him and establish a united Greek army, which he then uses to take on Persia. Um, so two years after becoming king, at the age of 22, Alexander sets out to invade the Persian Empire. Now, if you remember Daniel's vision, it said, while I was contemplating all of this, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of all the land without touching the ground. I saw it approaching the ram. It went into a fit of rage against the ram and struck it and broke off its two horns. The ram had no ability to resist it. The goat hurled the ram to the ground and trampled it. No one could deliver it from the ram from its power. And that is exactly what happened. Nobody could beat Alexander the Great. He was a strategic genius and he won every battle that he fought. Within three years, he had defeated the Persian Empire. <laughs> By the age of 30, 10 years after he became king, he had established one of the largest empires in world history. And by the age of 32, he was dead. 
He died in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon, probably of malaria, having never lost a battle. Going back to Daniel, but no sooner had the large horn become stronger than it was broken, and there arose four conspicuous horns in its place, extending towards the four winds of the sky. The male goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The horn that was broken and in whose place there arose four others stands for four kingdoms that will arise from his nation, though they will not have his strength. And so Alexander died in the height of his career, right? He had no heir. And so when, it, when he died, his empire was divided into, by, between four of his generals. They then battled each other for power, basically, for the next, I don't know, long time. Until eventually, the Greek Empire fell to the Romans. The legs of iron, the terrible beast. Um, And that happened in about 146 BC, and the Roman Empire dominated that whole part of the world for the next 600 years. Which is where, well, Jesus, yeah, is in there during the Roman Empire. Okay, now before we finish, there's one more story that I want to tell you before, well, before we finish and go back to Esther next week. <laughs> Israel's just in here. Yeah, pretty small. Okay, so one more story. This is during the time of Alexander. Um, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he records this like really interesting story about Alexander. He was besieging the city of, oh, where are we? Sorry. He was besieging the city of Tyre. And he sent a message to the high priest in Jerusalem saying, basically, come and help me. Send provisions for my army and send some people to support me. And the king, the, the high priest in Jerusalem says, no. no we gave our word on oath to Darius, king of the Persians, that we, would, that we would not rebel against him. And as long as Darius is alive, we're not going to break that oath. It's pretty brave, but I guess at this point, he's just getting started, right? So it's maybe not as scary. But anyway, and so he says, no, that makes Alexander very angry. And he basically says, when I'm done with Tyre, I'm going to come and destroy Jerusalem. So he finishes with Tyre. He travels down to Gaza, which is down here, and lays siege and wipes out Gaza. And then when he finishes with Gaza, he turns to Jerusalem. Now, the Samaritans, of course, they got right in behind Alexander because they see this as a great opportunity to to get rid of the Jews again. So they're coming up from Gaza on their way to Jerusalem and they're all excited because they think now they're going to get to loot Jerusalem and it says torture the high priest to death. The high priest, meanwhile, is terrified. He doesn't know what to do. And so he gets everybody in the city to pray and to plead with God to save them from Alexander. During the night, he receives a vision. Well, God speaks to him and basically tells him, don't be afraid. Adorn the city, make it beautiful, open its gates, dress in your high priest robes, get everybody else to dress in white, and then go out and meet Alexander. 
should be terrifying, right? But they do what they're told. So then Alexander, so Alexander, like I said, he's on his way from Gaza up to Jerusalem and he sees the high priest and this city dressed in white with Israel, with, with Jerusalem and the temple behind them in the plains approaching him. And something very strange happens. He doesn't order his army just to go and wipe them out. He orders his army to stop where they are and he approaches the high priest on his own. The people in, of Jerusalem surround Alexander. So he's in the middle of all these people in front of the high priest. And Alexander bows down to the high priest and worships the golden breastplate that has the name of God on it. His generals all think he's lost his mind. So they, one of them goes up to him and Parmenion comes up to him, basically says like, what on earth are you doing? And so then Alexander tells him a story. Back when he was in Macedonia, before he'd crossed the sea to try to take on the Persians, and he was trying to figure out how is he going to do this? How is he going to take on this mighty empire? He had a vision during the night. In that vision, he saw this very same high priest dressed in exactly these clothes come and meet him and say to him, don't wait, don't hesitate, just cross the sea and begin the invasion. God will guide your army and give you victory over the Persian empire. So he says, since then, I haven't seen anybody else dressed in these clothes. <laughs> so like, I think it's fair to assume this is probably the person I saw in my dreams, in my, in my vision. And this probably means that God is going to give me victory over the Persian empire. And so anyway, so Alexander then accompanies the priests into the temple in Jerusalem, offers sacrifices to, their, sacrifices to God there. And then again, Josephus records that Daniel presents, or that the high priest presented him with copies of Daniel and probably some of the passages that we've talked about that talk about the king of Greece. Um, and again, Alexander's very impressed and he's pleased. And so he asks what he could do for the people. And they basically ask that Alexander, when he takes over the Persian empire, that he allows them to obey their own laws um, and not have to pay tribute, not have to pay taxes on Sabbath years when they're not supposed to be producing anything. And so apparently Alexander was happy to grant him those things. So. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the background. That's the history of the events that happened during the days of Ahasuerus. That Ahasuerus who used to rule over 127 provinces extending all the way from India to Ethiopia. Yes, we've now finished verse 1. Next week, next week we'll start verse 2. But I, I, think, I think that this book will go much faster than Romans. Because it's less, less dense. Yeah, this is background. Now it'll just be the story, which should, should go much faster. Okay, let's pray. And then we can finish. Lord God, uh, again, I thank you so much that we can be here um, and that we can read, well, some of your word. But it's just, yeah. I thank you that these aren't just stories, but that this is history, Lord, and that you've been working through history. Uh, 
and that you authenticate that, that you demonstrate that so powerfully through the prophecy and, and that sort of thing that you have in there, Lord, that speaks of all these events before they happen. I ask that you would help strengthen our faith in you, um, our trust in you, Lord, and that we, would, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.